Well, good morning, church. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Thessalonians this morning. Uh, 2 Thessalonians, as uh, we uh, this morning will finish up uh, chapter 1 in our study of this wonderful little book. I perhaps should have done this uh, uh, when we started the series, but really in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, what we find Paul doing is uh, comforting these suffering Christians. And then it's when we get to chapter 2, we'll find Paul uh, now... um, providing uh, some help in their confusion. So we'll see that in chapter one, he commends them in their suffering. Chapter two, he corrects them in their confusion. And then chapter three, he is going to command them in their obedience. So if you want just a rough outline of this little book, three chapters, uh, chapter one, commending in their suffering, chapter two, correcting their confusion, and chapter three, commanding their obedience. And here we finish chapter one in some of the most, I think, uh, remarkable verses uh, that we have in Scripture. I think these verses uh, can become an extraordinary aid in your Christian life. It's going to be a little bit of a different sermon this morning. We're going to get really down into uh, the weeds here, and so I do hope you have your Bibles open. We're going to continually be referring back to Scripture as, of course, is our, our, our custom here, and so I think it would be helpful to have Scripture open wherever you might be here or on our live stream. I do want to uh, announce, as many of you are aware, uh, that today, uh, by way of reminder, is a a sad anniversary for our church. It was a a year ago this Tuesday that we, of course, all suffered the uh, sudden and tragic loss of our dear brother, Mark Cochran, um, our Sunday school teacher, our praise leader, our fellow elder. And so uh, please, uh, this week, be in prayer for our sister Dawn and the Cochran family, even our church as uh, I think uh, there's still a mourning going on in our hearts, certainly is in, in, in my life, and yet we um, mourn with great hope, don't we? And uh, it will be soon, and very soon, as we sometimes sing, that we shall worship Christ at his feet uh, with our brother Mark and all who trust in him, and we long for that day. And so uh, please uh, continue to pray for the Cochran family. And while you're praying this week, uh, let me uh, invite you, if you will, to pray for Doug Stratton and Esther. Uh, many of you know that uh, Doug is, is uh, now in a hospital bed at home, and uh, he is receiving uh, palliative care. And, and so uh, they need our prayers at this time. And, uh, of course, it's a sweet time for Doug and Esther, who have been married for so, so very long, served the Lord for so long. And we ask that God will work in them during this time. So uh, with that in mind, let me uh, direct your attention now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we will uh, consider this morning verses 11 and 12. Hear now the word of God. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Father, we're thankful for your word, as I've already shared with uh, this, our church, how impactful these verses have been in my own life as I uh, study them over this past month, and I trust and pray that they will be impactful upon those who hear um, them taught this morning. We ask that you do a great, great work that you might Save the lost today and sanctify your people in order that you might receive glory in us. And so we come now with hungry hearts and thirsty souls, and we we pray, as has been taught from long ago, speak, Lord, 
for your servants are listening. For we ask it in Christ's name, amen. It was in the year 1644 that uh, the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter uh, was suffering a great deal of depression. In fact, Baxter was so despondent that he despaired of life itself. You see, in 1644, England was in the middle of a civil war which prohibited this pastor from gathering with his congregation, something that we've been familiar with during this COVID time. Baxter also happened to serve as the chaplain to the parliamentary army, and yet because of his theology, there had been a falling out between him and Cromwell, the, the leader of the parliamentary movement. On top of this, he had a great friend who had recently died in the war. His own father was now imprisoned by the, the opposition, and his health was failing him, leaving him often sick and exhausted. And so he found himself in a, in a, a period of, of great despair and depression, and so he, he decided, as, as you might think, that in the midst of all this, he turned to Scripture to find support and solace. In fact, what he found in God's Word not only lifted his spirit, but was used mightily and has been continued to be used mightily in lifting the spirits of all those who claim Christ. You see, based upon his study, Baxter would go on to write a book entitled, The Saints' Everlasting Rest. In fact, you could still get a copy of it. I would commend it to you. 350 years uh, written and still in publication. It is a meditation on the return of Christ and the coming glories of heaven. And he would go on to counsel his reader to think often of the everlasting rest that they might find uh, in Christ as a motivation to live a life of faith. This is what Baxter would write. The frequent views of the glory are the most precious cordial in all afflictions. To sustain our spirits, to make our suffering far more easy, to strengthen our resolutions that we forsake not Christ for fear of trouble. It seems to me that what Baxter is doing here is the same thing that Paul is doing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He is comforting suffering Christians, as we have seen in the past few weeks, by pointing them to the coming glory of Christ's return. He does this not simply to soothe them in the midst of their troubles. Of course, they are in the midst of great persecution and affliction, as we've already established. But he is instead pointing them to Christ in order to exhort them on to faithful service. We often see this in Scripture, that we are told that of Christ's future return, not so we that might neglect this present life, but we might find power to live it. And I, and, I, and I point that out because I think we often miss this connection. That we say instead, hey, if Christ is returning soon, what do I care about this life? What do I care about this world? Right? And so you, you got the, the quintessential guy on the street with the sign, you know, the sandwich board sign. The end is near. Okay? You see that in the movies? You go up to Manhattan, they're all over the place, right? And, 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 and what do they look like? Well, they're all dirty. They're always dirty, right? They, like, haven't shaved in months. There's facial hair going everywhere. I mean, so, right? It's like they don't even care about life anymore, right? They're, they're never wearing any nice clothes. They're always smelly. And, like, why? Why are they always like that? Well, the conclusion is, if you think the end is near, you don't care how you smell, right? You don't care what you look like. You don't care about this life. It is interesting to me that the Bible actually teaches something radically different in direct contradiction to that conclusion. And it does so over and over and over again. We're told in almost every book in the New Testament, Jesus is returning, Jesus is returning, Jesus is returning. Never 
to get us to speculate about the timing of that return, but to get us busy doing the Lord's work. Christ is coming. How will he find you, Christian? Will he find you working? Will he find you godly? Christ is coming, therefore get to work. I would suggest to you if you long for the appearance of Jesus, and I hope and trust you do, then you would long to be found faithful and loving and Christ-like when he returns. You remember Moses, as we read in the book of Hebrews, he regarded disgrace for the, for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Why? Where does he find that power? To forsake the palace in order to receive the persecutions of a Christ follower. Well, we're told, because he was looking ahead to his reward. So Moses and all of us have a hope for the future, and that, that should change the way we live this life, right? We, we talked about last week. Christians uh, uh, ought to have gratitude for past grace, and we have um, a, a great hope for future glory. This is the push and the pull of the Christian life. We're pushed from behind by grace in which we have received in Christ, and we're pulled from ahead by the hope of glory that waits for us. Or to use the language of 2 Thessalonians, we are waiting for Christ's return, and if we are, we will find ourselves increasingly worthy of the calling that God has placed upon our lives. I hope you see this connection. Note there in verse 11 how he begins. He says, to this end, to this end. See, there's a connection. So you have to look, remember, what, is, what did we talk about last time? Well, verse 10, when he says, when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe because our testimony to you was believed. He's coming. He's going to be uh, marvelous. You're going to marvel. You're going to be glorified to that end. In light of Christ's return, I am going to pray this prayer for you. And so Paul saying, knowing that our future is secure and glorious, let's talk about life now. Life now. And he does in this former prayer, which I, as I've already mentioned, I think it's some of the most incredible verses that, uh, that are, are contained in the New Testament. I, I think these two verses have a massive power to direct the Christian life. I think they are worthy of your meditation, worthy of your memorization, worthy of your consideration, application, discussion with your brothers and sisters. And I'm very much looking forward to considering them with you this morning. If you are familiar with John Piper's writings, by the way, um, you don't have to read Piper long before he takes you to these verses. And I've read a great deal of Piper over my years, and so uh, he has heavily influenced my understanding of these verses. So if, if, if you hear me preaching, you say, well, that sounds a lot like Piper. Okay, yes, it does, because Piper has, has guided me. So I, I just want to lay that out. That there, much of what I think about these verses are not original to me, but have been influenced by his ministry in my life. You note that they're a form of prayer, don't you? I'll say in passing, to this end, we always pray for you. Paul's praying for them. We've seen that there are suffering Christians. We see this verse 4, verse 5, and they're suffering. And you notice Paul do, Paul's now getting to prayer, and he, and he does not pray for their suffering to end. Okay? I think he might in chapter 3. That's not an illegitimate prayer, when someone's suffering to pray for their suffering to end. However, whenever when someone comes to me and says, Pastor, I'm suffering, the first thing I do is to pray for that suffering to end. Are you like that? Is that is our tendency? God, get rid of this suffering. What's interesting to me is the apostle does not do that immediately, but rather begins to pray that God would use the suffering to good effect in their life. 
that they might be radically transformed by it. And we have here, of course, then this wonderful prayer. You begin by seeing what is he praying for? So what is, the, what, what is the request? He's praying for their transformation, their sanctification, their purification. How will be the next question we ask of this text. How will they be transformed? We'll find out that they will be transformed both by the use of their will and their faith. And then lastly, we'll consider why are we seeking this transformation through our will and our faith, and we'll find it is for the glory of God. You might sum up this entire passage, a sentence I'll repeat, uh, this sermon, that, that he is praying that they are transformed by God's power through faith-filled resolutions for Christ's glory. He's praying that they be transformed by God's power through faith-filled resolutions for God's glory. And as I mentioned, this explains how we live the life of our Christ follow, following. So let's begin with what? What is he praying for? Notice verse 11, he's praying for their transformation. He says to them, uh, to this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling. Worthy of his calling is the language that the apostle used. So when he says call, he's not talking about our vocation. Sometimes we use the word in that way, like I've been called to be a doctor, I've been called to be a missionary. That's not what he's saying there. Some suggest he's saying, well, this is the gospel call when the gospel comes to us and we, God calls us into faith. And perhaps this is what he's referring to is when God called them out of the, the, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his beloved son. And it might be that's what Paul's saying, but I'm not exactly uh, convinced of that. In fact, I, I would invite you just to turn to one book earlier, 1 Thessalonians, which we studied last year, and look in verse 12, verse 12 of chapter 2. It's very similar language in 1 Thessalonians 2.12. might help us understand what he means here in 2 Thessalonians 1.11 when he says, We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. Okay, that sounds a little familiar. We have this same phrase, worthy, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Okay, so he's saying, well, God is calling you, present tense, Excuse the grammar just for a moment. Present active tense, okay? So this is an ongoing call, not a one-time call in the past. An ongoing God is calling you where? Into his glory. God is calling you into his kingdom. He's doing that right now for you, Christian. He has been doing from the day you place your faith in him, continues to do that. He's calling you someplace. And Paul says, listen, I'm praying for you that God would make you worthy of the call to his kingdom of the ongoing call that God is going to bring you to glory. Of course, what does he mean by worthy? Well, if you're here a number of weeks ago, we've already seen that Paul's used this language. In verse 5, he says, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And if you remember, we decided that worthy, in this, uh, Paul is using it, does not mean deserving of. He's not saying, I want God to make you deserving of this calling. He's not saying, I want, I want God to uh, allow you to merit the calling. He is instead saying, I'm praying, when I, I'm praying that you may be worthy. I'm praying that you become suitable for the calling. You become fitting, that your life would be fitting to the glory in which you are called. And if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we used the illustration. I'm going to, excuse me, I'm going to use it again. The president calls this, uh, this morning. He says, I'm coming over tonight. I want to spend the night. Okay. So, so what do you do? Right? Yeah, you freak out. Uh, certainly, you go to your guest room, don't you? And you, you look around. And you say, is this guest room worthy of the president? 
Now, you're not saying, is it deserving of the president? Does the guest room have so much worth it deserves the president to come? You're saying, is it fitting to the president? You look around, there's an old lamp. You say, that's got to go. And the bedspread's all worn out. I need a new one. There's not enough gold in the room. The president evidently likes things to be gold. So you, you go get a, you know, some gold spray paint and you, you fix it up for the president, right? And then, and then the, you come back and say, okay, all right. This is worthy of him. Not that it deserves him. Not that the room has worth. The president has worth. Is the room fitting to that worth? So just to take the metaphor just a step further, you're the room and God's the guest. And God is coming to you, if you will. He is calling you into his kingdom. And he has begun a redecorating project in your life. Right? And, and, and praise the Lord, he has better taste than our president. Okay? He's not, he doesn't care if it's golden. He wants to make you holy and loving and Christ-like and faithful and joyful and patient and peaceful. So they begin to do this work in your life. In fact, when God called you, you weren't an out-of-date guest room. You were a pigsty, right? You're filthy in your sin. And, and, and we were completely unworthy of his presence, of this call upon our life. And Paul's saying, oh God, will you please make them worthy of this call? Will you transform them? Will you change them? Parents, you ever pray like this for your kids? You ever pray, God, I just want my kids to be worthy of the call that you have placed upon their life? Community group leaders, you ever pray this for your, your community group? Elders, you ever pray this for your sheep? God, make them worthy. God, change them, transform them, right? Uh, do a great work in them. Make them different. Of course, such an idea is so out of date in, our, in, our, in the day in which we live. Right, the most basic assumption in the Western world seems to be you, what you are is what you should be. What you are, this is what, this is what everybody, it's all in the background, everybody assumes it, what you are is what you should be. In other words, what you think about yourself, how you perceive yourself, what you believe about yourself, what, what, you, what you think you are, that's what you should be. That should be embraced. That should not be judged. That should not be evaluated. That should be affirmed and accepted. You have to be, we are told, to be true to yourself, right? Be who you are. What you are is what you should be. Now, and then, of course, if we come along and, and happen to say, actually, I think uh, your, your self-chosen identity is bad. Well, then, then, then the response is, you are attacking my very core. You are a hateful and bigoted person. This is the assumption in, in our day. It was uh, the great theologian, uh, Lady Gaga, okay, who uh, had her song, Born This Way. Right? We're born this way. And you could just, I'm not going to read the lyrics for you. You can assume what that song's about. Sold one million copies first week. You say, I just thank God that Lady Gaga is not directing anybody's life. Wrong. Millions of people look to her and people like her to understand the life that they live. See, the problem, here's the problem. And Christian, you should already see the problem. What if what, if what we are isn't good? What if we're fallen? What if I am prone to self-deception and self-centeredness and a terrible self-focus, even self-destruction. Yeah, I'm born 
that way, right? That's why we're in trouble, okay? That's why Jesus came and said, you need to be reborn, which would be a great song for Gaga to sing, right? Reborn this way, okay? So pray for that, right? That's what we want. We want to be changed. Paul says, make them worthy of your calling. This is one of the Hundred reasons why Christianity is offensive to those, to our neighbors. It has always been offensive from the very day. Read 1 Corinthians if you want to be persuaded of that. And it is offensive in our day because we think, okay, that's the way he, she is. That's the way he is. How can I ask them to change? Well, don't you understand that's the very heart of our faith? We need to change. What you are is not what you should be. We need to be transformed, become what we're not namely Christ-like, or as Paul says, worthy of the call, okay? So you might say, okay, well, how? How do I become worthy of this call of God upon my life into his glory, right? Well, we've already seen in verse 5 that Paul says this is going to happen through suffering. God purifies you through suffering. This is evidence of God's righteous judgment, right, that you may become worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. But now he goes on and he continues his prayer, and Paul begins to pray for what you do, that God would enable what you do. So he says, Paul, God, make them worthy. And then you notice he begins to look at, at us as if we're not passive in this process, that we're active in it. And he begins by saying it happens in our will. So our second point, how, how do we bring about this transformation? Well, it's the, through the use of our will. Look what he says there in, in verse 11. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good. So I'm praying, God, what, whatever resolve or intentions or goals or plans that these Christians have to do good, I want you to fulfill that. Now, the, the question that, that scholars wrestle with, is there a connection between these two requests? Make them worthy and fulfill every resolve for good. And I would suggest to you there is a connection. He's not praying for two separate things. I would suggest to you that the way in which God makes us worthy of his call is by working through our resolves, our goals, our intentions, our desires, through our will, that the, the means by which he makes us worthy is our resolutions. So the Christian life, in other words, to so this idea, resolve for good, a, a resolution, an intention, a goal, uh, we, we need to have those. The Christian life is not passive, right? It's, it is not let go and let God. That will lead you astray. That is not taught in the Bible. No, we, we are to be active in our Christian life. The Christian life is a planning life. It is a intending life. It is a resolving life. It is a goal-oriented life. It is not just a going along with it life. So Paul elsewhere in the book of Philippians will tell them to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Jesus will say, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Paul will write in Ephesians 4 and verse 1 that we, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. We see words like this, work and strive and walk. There are things for us to do. Here is what he he's been praying here. So here we are back in verse 11, and he says, listen, uh, you are to have good resolves, good goals, good intentions, resolutions. So I wonder, does this, this happens to you, doesn't it, Christian? I was talking to my kids about this last night. You know, someone preaches a sermon, and, and during the sermon, you, there's something working up in you, and you say, I want to do this. 
Right? Maybe, maybe it's already happened. Maybe I've already challenged parents to pray for your children to make them worthy. Maybe so, uh, one of you parents out there, hey, I, I have a, a, an intention that I'm going to start praying for my kids that God would make them worthy of the calling. That's a good resolution. That's what he says here. Right? You read a book. You, you talk to friends. You're studying scripture. God works in you, and, and you have a, a desire. Your will is engaged. You have a resolve for good. This is, this is part of the Christian life. My family, as you know, we, we spent a week on the beach uh, a couple months ago. And we found two animals at the beach. Okay? We found uh, jellyfish and dolphins. Okay? Jellyfish and dolphins. And by the way, I'm ripping this illustration off another pastor. Okay? So jellyfish. Um, what are jellyfish good for? Right? Jellyfish are good. For, the answer is nothing. Okay? <laughs> they are only good for ruining your vacation. Okay? They're, they're, and, and so they're everywhere. And, and what's interesting is the waves keep bringing in the jellyfish, right? They're not swimming against the waves. They're not fighting against the, the current. They're not, they're not battling against the tide. They're just going wherever the water takes them. It's almost as if they have no intention whatsoever. They're just floating. They're just coasting along like billions of people who have no intention, no desire, no ambition. They're just going along wherever circumstances change them. We also, about 50 feet out, saw dolphins, right? What do the dolphins do? Well, they're swimming this way, and then they're swimming that way, and they're jumping and leaping, and they don't care where the waves go. They don't care where the tide is. They're going wherever they want to go, right? And they're having fun, and they're having this great old time, and, 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 and they ha- have all these intents. I'm going to go this way. No, now I'm going to go this way. And, and, and what we should do, I think what Paul is saying is, listen, Christian, you're not a jellyfish, okay? You just don't float. You just don't coast through life. And you'll just let the circumstances take you. And if it go, we go this way, then that's where we're going. No. What we have is we have a will. God has given us a will. Praise God. And we are to use it to make plans and to make goals and to, to intentions to become more suitable to this calling. So just put all these ideas together. I hope you're with me. That Paul's praying that we would be transformed through our resolutions, through our intentions. But here's the problem. I don't know if you've ever experienced this. You ever have like an intention to do something and it never happens? Right? I mean, you say, okay, I, I, I'm going to, I intend to read my Bible every morning for 15 minutes a day. And, and that happens Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, it's, it's out the window. Right? I intend to be more peaceful and that lasts until you, you, you hit a red light. Okay? It's like five seconds, okay? It's gone, right? So how do we make sure our desires, our longings, our intents, our resolves for good, to use Paul's language, actually happen? Well, that's what he prays for next. Follow along. He says, to this end, we always pray for you, that God, our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill, so it's one verb, fulfill, it's gonna modify two requests, fulfill every resolve for good, and here it is, Every work of faith. Every work of faith. So you're, 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 you have works that we are to do. He's praying for that. And they come about by faith. A work of faith, a work enabled by faith. Uh, a faith, faith should be leading to works. We know this, right? This is what the whole book of James seems to be about. James says, you, you tell me you have faith by what you say. I tell you I have faith by what I do. With Faith without what works is dead, right? Our faith is 
to work. And so you resolve to read your Bible every day. How does that resolution become a work? How does that become a reality? It does so by faith. By faith. The work is empowered by faith. So let me give you an example. So you're, you're going to read your Bible. It's 15 minutes a day. I'm going to start. So Monday you read the Bible. Tuesday you read the Bible. Wednesday you wake up and your day is slam-packed. Okay? You got so much going on. And there's this voice that comes out of nowhere. You didn't invite it into your life. Here it comes. And it says to you, you don't have time to read the Bible. It says to you, listen, your prosperity depends on neglecting the Bible and getting to work. You have to get to work. Everything depends on it. So, what do you, so your resolution is now in danger that it might not happen. How do you make sure that it happens, that it becomes a work? You do so by faith. Faith in what? Well, the promises of God. So we, for instance, we read Psalm 1. It says, blessed is the man who does not what, st uh, stand in the way of sin or walk in the way of, of, of wicked. Someone help me out here. Blessed is the man who not, doesn't do all the bad things, uh, but all right, his law, his, his his delight is in the law of the Lord on his law. He meditates day and night. You know this. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, right? Bears its fruit in season. Its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, you know what? He prospers. He prospers. So the Bible comes to you and says, listen, if you meditate on the word, you will prosper. Well, a voice in your head says, no, no. You gotta get to work in order to prosper. Who are you gonna believe? That's the question. Who are you gonna believe? In order to take this resolution and make it a work, it has to be done by faith in God and his promise. Or to, pair, to use the counsel that Martin Lloyd-Jones has given and I've given you a hundred times, you need to stop listening to yourself and start talking to yourself. Because you get the voice, you don't invite it, and it tells you all the bad things, you've got to Meet that with the scripture, with the word of God, and trust in that. And I, I would suggest to you, listen, the promises that God attaches to reading scripture are so outstanding that if you are, some of you are neglecting God's word, right? You don't read the Bible. I'll tell you why you don't read the Bible. Because you do not believe the promises of God. If you believed what God said happens, read John 15, for instance, to those who abide in God's word, if you actually believe it, you would do it. Same with prayer. Some of you don't pray because you don't believe the promises of God attached to prayer. They are so amazing that you have to disbelieve them in order to neglect prayer. This is how we move from our, rev uh, our resolutions, our goals, our intents to actually becoming work. So let's, say, uh, let's get another example. So let's say you decide to be generous. You know, I, I, I want to be generous. Uh, let's say, y'all, I want to start tithing. I want to start giving God my first fruits as scripture instructs. You have that resolve, that intent, and then what happens? Well, a new iPhone comes out, okay? And there's a voice in your head that says, your life is going to be so much better with this new iPhone. I mean, it's got 16 cameras, okay? And your old one has eight, so that's much better. It comes in lime green, and I mean, this, how, how awesome is this thing? I need, in order to have a joyful life, I need the new iPhone, and so now your resolution to give to God as he instructs is threatened by this temptation. How, 
How, how do you make sure that resolve becomes a work? You do so by faith. Faith in what? Faith in the promises of God, as he says, you know, it is more blessed to what? Give than receive. Because you have a lie in your head that says, no, 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 it's more blessed to receive the iPhone. And you have to fight that by faith in God's word. No, God tells me it's more blessed to give than to receive. Let's say a big expense comes. I got this expense. I, ha- I can't tithe clearly because I have this expense. No, you meet that with the word of God. When Jesus says, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, all these things shall be added unto you. Paul will tell us in the book of Philippians, that my God is able to supply all your needs according to his riches in Christ's glory, and on and on and on. We have all these promises that God gives us. The temptation comes to derail our intentions. We fight against that by believing in the promises of God and making it come into work. One more. Let's say you, you resolve, listen, I'm going, to, I'm going to be a better witness for Christ. I just want to witness for Jesus. I'm not doing that well. I resolve. I have intent to be a better witness for Christ. And you go to work, and, and you're at the coffee pot, and, 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 and you know, Lenny says, hey, what do you do this weekend? And what you want to say is, well, I spent time considering how God makes me worthy of his call into his kingdom and his glory. But then you don't want to be weird. And you think, if I say that, Lenny's going to look at me like I've got a third eye, and then he's going to talk to, you know, Susie over there, and everybody's going to be talking about how strange I am. I don't want to be the strange guy. I don't want to be the weird guy. Right? So what do you do? Your resolution is now threatened. It's not going to come about. And if it doesn't come about, you're not going to be increasingly transformed into uh, the, the, glo- uh, the glory of God, to made worthy of the call of God. You meet that. By faith. Faith in what? The promises of God. Jesus says, blessed are, people. blessed are you when people persecute you and revile you and speak all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. You say, well, what if Lenny asks me a question? I can't answer this question. I'm going to look like an idiot. I don't, I don't want to look like an idiot. How do, how do you fight against that? You fight by faith. Jesus says in Mark chapter 13, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but you say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. The temptation comes to derail your goal, right? How do you make sure you overcome that temptation and make your goal, your intentions a work? You do so by faith. It is a work of faith. To this we always pray that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. A work empowered by faith in the promises of God. Now here's my question, Christian. How often do you go through a day or maybe a week, or God forbid a month, without ever intentionally resting in one of God's promises? How often do you get to the end of the day and you say, God, I didn't trust you for anything today. Faith had nothing to do with my day. Oh, you were in the background. I believed you in the background. But I didn't trust you for anything. And there's a reason I was anxious today, and the reason I was cranky today, and there's a reason that, that, that I was murmuring today, because I never fought against it through faith. When the Bible says walk by faith and live by faith and work by faith and talk to God throughout the day, God, you promised me this, and I'm struggling because I want to do this, but you said this, and I, I, I need to believe you. Help me to believe I'm holding on to your promises, God. I want you to change me. I want you to make me worthy of the calling. I want to be suitable to where you're bringing me. 
but I can only do that if I trust you, and I can only trust you if I know you. And so, Christian, you need to develop a treasure chest of promises of God, an arsenal that you say, God, help me to believe these, and then you would use them to fight against the temptations when they come. So you have a resolve for good, don't you? There's something in your life you want to grow with. You want to become a woman of prayer. You want to be a patient father, a forgiving friend. You want to serve the church. You want to honor your parents. You want to grow in self-denial. That resolution will only become a work if you do so by faith. This is how God makes you worthy of his calling. And you notice he is doing it by your power. Read on in verse 11. What does he say? To this end, we always pray for you that our God may fulfill your results for good and uh, that may, excuse me, may make you worthy of his call and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith. What is it? By his power. By his power. So you're not doing your own strength. You're not saying, okay, this is my resolution and I will fulfill it by complete sheer will. That's your power. I'm going to do it. I'm motivated, right? That's doing it in your strength. But when we do it by faith, it's not our strength. It's God's. It's his power that we find. So do it in God's power. God, I believe you're telling me the truth. I, I, I trust you for this. And God will then transform us by his power through our faith-filled resolutions, which is why, of course, he gets the glory, doesn't he? The whole, the why of this, why, why do I do this? Well, we're told in verse 12, are we not? Uh, he says, uh, so that the name of, um, excuse me, let me find it. So that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him. Right? So that God, would, Christ would be glorified. Why is Paul praying this? Well, it's ultimately the whole goal in this whole process is I want to glorify Jesus. I want to bring him glory. I want to experience his transforming power in my life. And as I'm transformed more and more into his image, well, he becomes glorified. Right? Christian, part of the reason you're here this morning, don't you understand, is so that you may increasingly be able to glorify Christ. Part of the reason you're watching this morning is so that you may be increasingly able to glorify Christ that God would transform you, that God would make you worthy, that he would change you, and as he does, he's glorified because he's the one he's bringing it about. So is that your goal? Do you have any ambition? Or are you just floating? Are you just coasting through this Christian life? Isn't it nice and easy? Just going along. Or say, no. I'm going to swim against the tides that are continually to hit me. Are you going to be true to yourself or are you going to be transformed? I want to be transformed. This is the Christian call that Christ may be glorified in my life. Men, do you ever, do you ever get to the point where I'm tired of letting my wife down? You ever think that? You ever, you ever get to the point where like, I, I, I want to be a radiant testimony of Christ? I'm tired of being a coward, backing down because I think someone's going to feel thoughts about me that I don't want them to think. I'm tired of running away. I want to be changed. What resolution, what intent do you have? You won't be transformed unless God begins to burden you with these things and that you might pursue them through faith. Of course, all of this is, is a work of grace. I mean, is that how he ends his prayer? You see that in verse 12? 
He says, so that the name of the Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you and him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all by God's grace. In other words, do you know why you have all these promises in Scripture? What, what, why, why do you get that incredible privilege? Is it because of your greatness? Does God owe them to you? No. It's by his grace. You know who he owes these promises to? There's only one person. His name is Jesus. God owes them all to Jesus, and what happens? By his grace, we are united to Christ. We find ourselves in him, and so what is due to Jesus now becomes amazingly due to me and to you by God's grace. In fact, Scripture tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So we get these promises when we're united to Christ my last question for you this morning is, are you united to Christ? Are you in him? You see, the Bible teaches us that Jesus was actually the long-awaited Messiah who came into this world, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and he would take on humanity, creator becoming creation. And there he would live a life of perfection, keeping God's will in every aspect. Eventually, after uh, three decades upon this, this earth, he would be nailed to a cross, and God would punish Jesus, not for his sin, for he had none, but for my sin and for your sin. We call this the substitutionary atonement. Christ was our substitute. So God punished Jesus for all the wrong I've done and all the wrong that anybody who trusts in him have done. And then, and then he, he not only took our, our sin and put him on Jesus, he took all of Jesus' righteousness and put it upon me. And you, who are credited with Christ's record. And then three days later, we read that Jesus rose from the dead, historically, bodily, physically, ascended into heaven 40 days after that, and one day will come, as we've seen in 2 Thessalonians, and return in glory, renewing this world, and bringing in his kingdom in the fullness. And the Bible tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is your Lord, that is, he's the one I follow, he's the one I obey, he's the one I seek after, the Bible calls this repentance, Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that's faith, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I invite anyone to be saved today that we see the mercy and the grace of God and would change your eternity forever if you would place your faith in Christ. Calling out to him, I believe, have mercy on me, a sinner. And for those of us who have placed our faith in Christ, well, he's calling you, Christian, to be transformed. Every single one of you. He wants to make you increasingly worthy of the calling upon your life. He wants to do that by his power through your faith-filled resolutions so that Christ might be glorified in you. Will you seek after that as he seeks it for you? Our Father in heaven, we are thankful for your word and the great encouragement it is to us, the great challenge it is to us. I've been so impacted by these verses, and I pray and trust that you would do a good work amongst my friends here and my brothers and sisters in Christ, this church, all who happen to be watching on our live stream. God, do a sanctifying work in us and through us. Help us to have great ambition to grow in our Christ-likeness and our godliness. And help us to find the power to fulfill those resolutions by trusting in what you say, that we might become more like you. That's our great longing. We're thankful for the promises in which we are given. They are bountiful, unbelievable, stupendous, and yet uh, we so often neglect them.
Will you forgive us for that? Forgive us for trying to live this life in our own strength and forgetting what you have promised to do for us. I pray, especially for the members of this church, that as we go forward, we will, we will intentionally seek after your truth and your promises and your commands that we might be more, made more and more like our Lord, bringing him glory. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.